On today's episode, I will be speaking with John Kempf, founder and chief visionary officer of Advancing Eco Agriculture. You're going to want to stick around and listen to this entire episode because John was probably one of my favorite interviews from all of 2023. John is the first Amish founder I have ever spoken with, and I found it fascinating to dive in on how that has shaped him into the founder and leader that he is today. In the episode, a few things that I really want you to listen for is how their thoughtful approach to growing via profits has enabled them to reach 18 million in revenue last year alone, which is unbelievable. And they've done all of that without ever having raised outside capital to date. I also want you to take away that John and his team are doing for agricultural industry what healthy eating and working out can do for our own human bodies. They're taking an approach that is upending the pesticides industry by achieving better farm output without chemicals and are doing this by leaning into the strengths of the underlying plants. Their natural approach is actually proving to be a winning model. And lastly, I want you to really pay attention to how he and his team are evolving their consulting business into a software-based, productized version that delivers the same insights and data-driven decision-making to farmers at scale after years of doing it by hand via consulting. I think it's actually a really brilliant model and one that sets them up for long-term success and robust company growth. So with that, let's get on to the show. John, thank you very, very much for being here today with us. Chris, thanks for having me on here. I'm always excited to talk about the amazing world that we can create in our future if we all work together. So I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I, I like your energy already. Um, John, for those who don't know you, please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to found Advancing Eco Agriculture. I grew up in an Amish community. I'm still a member of the Amish community here in Northeastern Ohio on a family fruit and vegetable farm. So we had 25 acres of vegetables and uh, we were very intense users of pesticides. By the early 2000s, 2002, three and four, we had a three year period in which we lost greater than 70% of our crops to a number of different diseases and insects that we couldn't manage with pesticides. And there's this fascinating story of this one field where uh, we began renting a field from a neighboring farm that bordered right up against one of our fields and planted a crop of cantaloupe across the field border. And at harvest time, this was the 2004 growing season, at harvest time, the soil that had a prior decade of intense pesticide applications had 80% of the leaves infected with disease, and we lost most of that crop. And on the new soil, there was no disease, not 5% or 10%, but zero. You couldn't find a single spot on a single leaf. And that was such a light bulb moment. I really wanted to know what are the differences between those two plants and what allows one plant to be resistant to disease when the next plant right beside it is susceptible. And that led to a lot of research and study and uh, the opportunity to become connected with a lot of amazing uh, mentors and plant pathologists. And what I learned in kind of its most elementary form is that plants have an immune system much the same way that we do. But we know that our immune systems don't all function equally well. Some people's work much better than others. And our immune system function is an expression of our microbiome integrity and our nutritional integrity. How well that immune system is supported with our nutrition and by our microbiome. And the same concept holds true of plants as well. But even though I grew up on a farm and we had uh, pesticide salespeople, fertilizer salespeople in and out of our driveway every week, no one had ever talked to us about 
plant immune systems. I didn't know such a thing even existed. And so that really, that experience then led to the founding of Advancing Eco-Agriculture in 2006. And we developed a very different perspective that we should be using, we should be managing nutrition to produce disease and insect resistant crops that provided really healthy food and that eliminated the need for pesticides. And so that, uh, it took us some time. The reason we were only doing investment fundraising is because we needed to take the time to build up lots of experience and create super credibility from a practical infield perspective. Because otherwise, this just sounds like a fancy hypothesis and a theory that might work in a lab somewhere. But at this point, after a decade and a half, that's not true anymore. One of the things that I'd like to understand a little bit more, being kind of a novice in this space, um, when you go to the grocery store and you see, you know, there's organic products on the shelf, are organic products representative of the type of products you're creating? Or is this idea of non-pesticides, non-chemicals, is that different from organic? Are those two different things or do they cross over? Can you help us understand that a bit more? Roughly 40% or so of the growers that we work with are organically certified, but many are not. And I would actually say the majority of the acres that we work with are not organically certified. There are two pieces, like every, every three or four years, it seems there's a new wave of media headlines that organic isn't any better than, uh, than contemporary produced food. It's not any better for you. And it's interesting that they, they frame that conversation in terms of nutritional integrity, nutritional value. But in reality, the organic certification process never makes a claim to being more nutritionally sound. Instead, it makes a claim to contain fewer pesticides. But you know, what I found so interesting as um, at this point, we've worked with over 4 million acres and helped thousands of farms through this transition period. Even the non-organic farms, we're seeing very dramatic reductions in pesticide use, upwards of 70 to 80%. Sometimes that happens in 12 months. Sometimes it takes 24 to 36 months, depending on the context. But we're seeing these dramatic declines. And the piece that I found so inspiring early on is when you have really healthy plants that are completely capable of resisting diseases and insects, not only does that greatly reduce the need for pesticides, but when you have a healthy plant, you can't stop yields from increasing. We didn't approach this from a perspective of we're going to help increase yields, but that's kind of happening by default. And we've actually developed a reputation for that in the space, which is fascinating that we came at this challenge from a completely different perspective and uh, we've produced outcomes that have really surprised everyone. What are some of the core elements and learnings that you had that enables you to help these plant crops be able to use their own immune systems and not need these pesticides to protect them or maybe even hurt them. What, what is the finding? How, what did you learn? Historically, if we go back to the beginning 15 years ago, what I was amazed at was to discover that a great deal of the knowledge of how plant immune systems function, how to manage them, already existed. It already existed in the literature. It was very well-known knowledge by scientists but it hadn't been transferred into actual practical application. A foundational challenge with why our agriculture and also our pharmaceutical industry, but we'll focus on agriculture for the moment, why our agricultural model is a pesticide-centric model today as it is, is it because of IP protection if, uh, and the way our intellectual property protection is framed. You have to have a unique, novel mechanism or mode of action that you can patent. and. This leads to a silver bullet mentality that we need to have 
a product with an active ingredient in a jug that is going to fix this problem. When in reality, the problems are not a result of a drug deficiency. Like we don't have, we don't get a headache because we have an aspirin deficiency. And a plant doesn't get a disease because it has a pesticide deficiency. They get these diseases as a result of foundational nutritional and microbiome imbalances. And so what is very different about our approach at AEA is taking a deep systemic approach and trying to identify the root cause of why we have certain weeds or certain insects or certain diseases uh, showing up and then addressing those root causes. And when you address those root causes that are nutritional imbalances or microbiome imbalances, all of a sudden the diseases just disappear. We have enough collective experience now that uh, there are many diseases that we can correlate with specific nutritional profiles. We can say with certainty that you have spider mites on this crop because you have too much ammonium and not enough molybdenum, or that you have aphids because you don't have the right types of sugars in your plant. Like we know these things with certainty. And then there are other diseases, and I find this really interesting because there is this broad group of what are called um, incurable diseases, treatment diseases for which there is no known treatment. They include bacterial canker and Pierce's disease and crown gall, the list goes on and on. And what is so intriguing is that we start working with growers who have crops infected with these diseases and all of a sudden, mysteriously, the plants recover. The disease disappears. Like I, we have dozens of testimonials and amazing stories of blocks of cherries that were going to be dozed over and completely destroyed because they were dying because of bacterial canker. And in 12 months, they're completely bacterial canker free. And people ask us the question, well, what did you do? Like, you're going to be a millionaire if you can figure out uh, what you did to solve that problem. And the answer is, we fixed the system. We did everything. Like we can't point to a single silver bullet in a jug because we addressed all the nutritional imbalances. We, we addressed manganese and zinc and copper and cobalt. And when we did those things, bacterial canker disappeared. And so there is, there is this deep desire to have a single point and shoot solution, but it is that desire for simplistic solutions that got us into trouble in the first place. It sounds a lot like with humans, when you have, you know, you might be sick or have different issues and a change of diet and getting healthy and doing the preventative things that take care of your body, right? And it's, it's walking and working out more and eating right. It's doing the right things for your body so that your immune system is strong, so your body is strong, so that you can fight off these different diseases or issues that may come your way um, or prevent them by being in a healthy state. It, it really sounds like you're... Um, you're the, the chef and the personal trainer for plants in a way. <laughs> it is exactly like that. We, we, are, we are that coach for farmers. And to further your analogy, we also have to recognize that we've gotten into this space where we have these very degraded ecosystems as a result of our historical management practices. Like uh, we, we now have soils that no longer contain enough of some of these trace minerals. Like many of our agricultural soils no longer contain enough cobalt and molybdenum and, molybdenum and selenium to provide the nutrition that these plants require to be completely healthy and that we require to be completely healthy. And the reason that's true is because of this phenomenon that's called uh, accelerated geological weathering as a result of fertilizer applications and as a result of pesticide applications. So. 
as a result of our uh, delight with chemistry over the last century, we have significantly uh, changed the nutritional profile, the nutritional integrity of many of our agricultural soils. So we have to give the plants a better diet, so to speak, but we also have to recognize uh, the foundational cause of why they don't have a good diet today, why the nutritional imbalances exist. It's because of our history, and uh, we, need to, we, need to, we need to regenerate uh, many of these degraded soils. Now I want to hit on the fact that, you know, you might be listening to this and think, well, this all sounds really nice, but is there a business here? Well, first off, these guys have been around for a while. Last year, they did over $18 million in revenue, and they've been growing really, really nicely. So the very simple answer is yes, there's a real market here, and they know how to generate money from actually doing these things and helping uh, to save these plants and, and help, you know, farmers and croppers do a better job. But let's dive in. How do you actually make money from the things that we're talking about here today? I'm going to take a step back. There, there's also a question that is often asked is, well, if you've been around for 15 years, then why are you raising money now? And uh, there's, there's an important uh, background context here. I grew up in an Amish community where uh, raising outside investment funding was not the way you grew an enterprise. You, you grow an enterprise organically and, you, and very conservatively. You conserve cash. Uh, you you basically grow from profits. And so that's the pathway we've been on for the last 15 years. And I, I think to the point that I made earlier, it was a necessary pathway for us to establish credibility uh, in the marketplace. So um, to, to get to your question directly is how do we make money? Well, Advancing Eco Agriculture started initially in 2006 as a consulting company. Uh, we started by helping growers doing a very deep assessment of their soils, of their plants, and making a, a thorough set of recommendations for how they needed to begin managing nutrition and the microbiome differently. And after several years of that, we became very frustrated because the types of products that we were recommending were very difficult for growers to access. They're less difficult now. Uh, there, there's more on the market now than there were 15 years ago, but at the time, if we made a recommendation to a grower to apply cobalt or molybdenum to their soils or to their crops, it would not happen 95% of the time because it was they had a difficult time getting those raw materials. And so we shifted our business model in 2009 and began developing these kind of specialty plant nutritional products and these microbial inoculants to help facilitate the transition. And so today, uh, or I should say, since 2009, our business model has been uh, based on we still provide this deep agronomic coaching and consulting, and we get paid based on the products that growers use. And we're now in the early days in the process of shifting that back again to a blend where there is consulting service and a crop scouting service that is disassociated from the use of products because as we begin working more with institutional investors and with large-scale corporate farms, uh, there is sometimes a need to have um, to avoid that potential conflict of interest and to have pure consulting that is disassociated from products. Let's talk about what the products look like. What, what is that exactly? What are you selling them? Is it, is it the seedlings? What, what is it? Yeah, so um, to continue with our human health analogy, you could almost s say that they are uh, multivitamins and probiotics for plants. 
we do not have contemporary mainstream fertilizers like nitrogen and potassium and phosphorus fertilizers and so forth. Instead, we have formulated very bioavailable and very effective uh, specialty trace minerals like the molybdenum and the cobalt and the boron and the zinc that are needed for plants to have functional immune systems. And so these, most of our products, uh, our nutritional products, um, for the most part, are liquid formulations that are used in foliar, uh, to be foliar sprayed onto a plant or used in irrigation systems or used at planting. And then uh, similarly, the, the microbial inoculants, um, what you would think of as a probiotic, are applied as seed treatments or they're applied to the leaf surface, they're applied to the root system to really help the plant uh, develop a what we call a disease suppressive microbiome that allows it to completely suppress any potential pathogens from expressing themselves as a disease. Well, you know, I know a lot of people when they hear a company has been around for 15 years, that starts to make them nervous. And it actually upsets me because I think we, many folks have been ill-trained to think that, you know, you got to get into the company when they're just starting out. And, you know, if they've been around for a while, it means they weren't successful, yada, yada. And so many of those things are wrong um, and are really just a representation of the last decade where money was free and, and things were crazy. Um, but building a really strong, sustainable, large business takes time. And the fact that you're 15 years into this and have really figured out how to monetize and productize what you're doing, I think is a major testament to the fact that you all know how to build a really good business and could actually lead to very, very good outcomes. But would love for you to give us your thoughts and perspective on, you know, where does the exit come from? Is this, you know, a five, 10, 15 year play? I'm, I'm sure people are kind of wondering, is this, is there another 15 years in this thing or is there a path to some sort of exit in the years to come? Uh, well, one way to think about the fact that we've been around for 15 years is that we've removed all the startup risk. And <laughs> so there is, uh, there is that facet. You know, uh, before I answer your question, I think there is, uh, I'd like to offer some perspective on where the company is going. I don't know exactly how our business model is going to shift and evolve over the next three to five years, but I'm certain that it will significantly. Um, and my reason for saying that is because uh, while there continues to be a tremendous need for these specialty type products that we have developed, uh, there is something else that we've developed within our organization that I believe is even more valuable than that. And that is the know-how of how to transition. Like there are today, there are thousands of farmers and collectively tens of millions of acres who desire to transition from their current agricultural practices to regenerative practices. And they want people to help them make that transition who know what they're doing. And how many people are out there that have that experience? Almost no one. Like this, we, in, in a sense, we were really ahead of our time and it was, uh, it was a hard slog for the early years because we were so far ahead of our time. But now we're in this very fortunate position where we can say that we have 15 years of experience in helping farmers transition on scale, which is something that no one else can say. What makes advancing eco-agriculture so valuable as an organization is not the products and the impact that they can have on farms, although that is very uh, a very critical piece. But what makes us so valuable is that collective knowledge and know-how of helping a farm transition. And uh, a foundational piece of our success has been uh, living by the mantra that never guess about something you can measure. Since we're making recommendations for farmers that are significantly different from the mainstream, 
we need those recommendations to be backed by a lot of solid science. So we're doing a lot of laboratory testing of plant analysis and soil analysis, and we're making a very thorough set of tests and recommendations that result from that data. And the result is that we now have 15 years of data of plant nutritional profiles and soil nutritional profiles and the treatments that were applied and what the outcomes were. So we now have the ability to predict disease and insect susceptibility into the future based on a soil and plants nutritional profile. So uh, we're in the process, it's still very early days, but we're in the process of digitizing all of the data and unleashing machine learning and AI on it. And what is going to happen is that at some point in the near future, a farmer will be able to get an alert on his phone that says, you need to begin scouting your crops for this disease because we're expecting it to be present sometime in the next two to three days. And, oh, by the way, of your 11 different fields, field number three and field number eight have a high susceptibility rating because of X, because of this nutritional imbalance or because of this microbiome imbalance. And that's such a powerful piece because it completely changes the narrative. First of all, it allows you to manage proactively instead of reactively. But secondly, it also changes the conversation from uh, treatment with a pesticide to prevention with nutrition and microbiome management. And so um, the advancing eco-agriculture of the future is going to be a technology company more than a product company. The product is there to support, obviously the growers need them. It's the, the products are needed in the field to actually make change happen. But I think it's really the technology piece that is going to become so valuable and that is really the scalable piece. So anyway, um, to answer your question, the um, we're still figuring out what the clear pathway to exit look, looks like. It's in, in our mind, uh, we think AEA is going to grow and evolve significantly as an organization over the course of the next several years. And we're looking at uh, facilitating an exit timeline in uh, roughly a three to five year window. But what does that look like exactly? Does that look like a larger investor coming in and um, taking over the current ownership stake? Does that look like a sellout? Uh, or a buyout by a larger agribusiness corporation. That's, uh, it's premature for us to know exactly what that might look like. There's multiple possible avenues, but we're very intent on facilitating that exit pathway. Really, really interesting. Um, and, and something that you said that I just want to make really clear to folks and, and crystallize for them is essentially what I'm hearing is you're kind of taking this long-term consulting business you have and you're taking all those insights and knowledge and now you're productizing it into kind of software technology that can proactively provide that insights and knowledge to an end user without necessarily needing the human to be there to walk them through those insights and knowledge. Um, and that, Bingo. that one is very scalable, but two, you know exactly what your customers need because you've been doing it for 15 years. You know the things they need to hear, you know the things that they're, they're wondering about, and now you can create that in a software technology where they could get it through the app rather than you needing to be boots on the ground every time, which creates that scalability. This is a software, will become a software technology platform. Like we, we already have um, some of these, some of the components and pieces of this software that we're using inside AEA today in, in the beta stage. And um, this is a tool, these will be a set of tools that will be accessible to any farmer on the globe anywhere growing a crop. And uh, not limited to people and to farmers who are interested in organic or regenerative like this. I can see this easily becoming a an absolute requirement in order to remain competitive. Like if you can get advanced notification of disease and insect susceptibility and reduce your risk, 
and increase crop performance, uh, the people who embrace that technology are quickly going to supersede the people who don't. Now, anytime you're challenging the status quo, right, there, there are major forces at play who are the sellers of pesticides and chemicals to farmers. That's a massive, massive industry. Um, can you talk to us about any challenges or bumps in the road you faced kind of taking on the established, you know, chemicals industry, as you might say? We haven't encountered any uh, any organized resistance from the, the establishment, as you might call it. Uh, you know, I, I love this quote by Buckminster Fuller that says, you don't fight an existing system, you simply replace it with something that's so much better. And I think that's certainly the, the model that we're in. I'd say if there's any uh, quote-unquote resistance that we've encountered, it's not particularly resistance other than uh, the simple fact that for, for the farmers implementing it, uh, it is, it's important to communicate, I think, that this different type of management approach, it's in, going back to the human health analogy, it is the difference between taking a, a natural holistic health approach versus relying on an MD. In one model, you can completely uh, transfer your trust into the doctor and you can take whatever prescriptions they give you. And in the other model, in the second model, more holistic health model, you really have to take ownership. You have to take ownership, and there's a much greater degree of, of knowledge required and more management intensity, a greater degree of responsibility. And so uh, it's some, the same is true of farmers, that there is a greater degree of responsibility and there is more thought intensity. There's more knowledge required. It's more knowledge intense. And so uh, there is kind of that inherent uncomfortableness with change, the risk of something new in a different model. But, but that is also, for many growers, that's really offset by the excitement and the enthusiasm of being really being able to do a better job and to produce healthier, higher-quality food. For those who are interested in investing but are kind of on that line, what's kind of your, you know, your final pitch to them to get them excited about investing? I'm not going to frame this in terms of dollars and cents in economics. You know, the, the, the interesting part is we actually opened this uh, community fundraising round because of a fundamental value of ours that regeneration and regenerative agriculture uh, is fundamentally about regenerating relationships at all levels, regenerating relationships between soil microbes and plants, between livestock and the landscape, between humans and the landscape, between various human organizations. At any level, it's all about regenerating relationships. And so I want Advancing Eco Agriculture to not be a company that does regeneration, but to be a company that is regenerative all the way down to its very inherent DNA. And so when you think about uh, healthy versus unhealthy relationships, or you could say degraded versus regenerated relationships, a degraded relationship is a relationship that is based on extraction. It's transactional and it's competitive. Whereas a regenerative relationship is a relationship that is cooperative and collaborative and symbiotic. And I've always wanted a pathway where our customers and our employees and our supporters and the, the people who really desire to create a better world for the future have the opportunity to participate in our growth and success. And a crowdfunding pathway was the administratively easy way for us to be able to facilitate that. And that was really one of the uh, principal drivers that went us down this path. I mean, the reality is, uh, going back to 
where we started this conversation. Why are we doing this now after 15 years? There is the component of, A, I really want to involve the community and have the community be able to participate in our success and have these symbiotic and collaborative relationships with all of our stakeholders and supporters. And uh, secondly, we, uh, we stand at an inflection point based on our technological development and the de development where we are at as a team and the confluence of events that is happening in the agricultural space where there is a pathway for us to grow very rapidly in the next three to five years and um, even faster than what we can support simply by organic growth. And so that's the reason for us doing this now. I think we're, we're very much aligned on, on those views of a community round. Last question for you, being an Amish founder, I'll tell you, you're the first Amish founder we've had on our podcast and maybe the first <laughs> Amish founder I've seen uh, in my five and a half years of doing this. And we've looked at 7,000 plus companies. Tell me what a common misconception is of being an Amish founder. And what do you think one of the strengths or benefits you've gotten from being an Amish founder? To your first question, I will say that the Amish community is not one homogenous whole. There are dozens of different denominations with all varying degrees of adaptation to technology. Like there are, and I am among a less conservative group, which is why we're having, here, having this conversation here on a podcast and why you're seeing me come up in the technology space in ways that you haven't seen other Amish founders before. So that's one thing that is a common misconception is that uh, all the Amish walk single file, if you will. And then there are a few pieces. One of them that seems kind of foundational is just the fundamental integrity. I had the privilege of growing up in a community where uh, your word was your bond and a handshake sealed the deal no matter the cost. And uh, I got it taken advantage of a couple times early on as I was building the business as a result of that trust. But you know, it's really what you put out in the world is what comes back to you again. And so being able to, to bring that forward in business relationships, I think has been very powerful. Uh, a second piece has been a very strong appreciation for the power of community and, and how communities um, are stronger. You really truly are stronger together as a team than you are separately as individuals. But I think if um, the, there are two pieces that are personally very meaningful to me, one of them is uh, how you deal with other people when there is conflict or when there are differences of perspective. There is uh, the Amish community, of course, comes from a, a very conservative Christian theological background. And in Matthew 18, there's this verse. Uh, I'm used to reading it in German, so I'll paraphrase it a little bit and you can look up the exact translation. But something to the effect of if a brother offends you, you are to go to him and have the conversation and seek resolution between the two of you immediately. And if you're unable to come to a resolution, you should then go get someone else and the two of you should have the conversation or you should get to two other people to go with you. And if you're still unsuccessful in uh, coming to a resolution, then you bring it to the entire organization. And this is, of course, speaking about it in a church context in the context of a brotherhood, but the same thing is true of, of an organization or of a community. That mechanism, that means if everyone followed that, that is such an effective logjam breaker. It just breaks all communication barriers. And this is something that I've, a culture that I've really tried to uh, inculcate into throughout our organization at Advancing Eco Agriculture is that when there is conflict, when there are challenges, you lean into them because all of the most beautiful relationships, the most beautiful conversations, the most beautiful outcomes occur on the other side of those difficult conversations. And the easiest way to turn a molehill into a mountain 
is to just avoid addressing it. And so this has been some one piece that I've really come to appreciate. And uh, the second piece that I was going to mention also from the Amish background that is very relevant is that the golden rule is not passive, but active. When I ask people to describe the golden rule as if though I were six, the common response is, if you don't want Johnny to do bad things to you, then you shouldn't do bad things to Johnny. But that's actually not what the golden rule says at all. It says, do unto others the things that you want to do them to do to you. So that first version, don't do things to other people, you can do that in complete isolation, in a room completely isolated from the rest of society. But the second version of the golden rule requires action. It's positive frame rather than negative frame, and it's active versus passive. I think that uh, kind of that go-giver mentality, you can call it karma, you can call it whatever you like, but it is what you put out in the world comes back to you again. The key phrase is you have to put it out into the world. Cast your bread upon the waters. It's not passive. It requires action. You have to get out and do it. No, John, thank you so much. This has been a, a very illuminating conversation, and I really appreciate all your insights and, and thoughtful views. Um, and congrats on all the success that you, you've all had already uh, with the business. I know we're excited to be investors here at King's Crowd Capital, and uh, I'm really looking forward to watching where this company goes in the years to come. So for those who are interested, you could still invest. Um, definitely go and check them out, and we'll, we'll drop the link in the show notes. Thanks so much, John, and have a wonderful day.